Hi there, Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment here. Welcome to the latest episode of Farm Equipment's podcast series, Our Dealer Story. In this week's episode, Sarah Hill, Associate Editor of Precision Farming Dealer, a sister publication of Farm Equipment, visits with Scott Huber from Huber Inc., the nine-store Case IH dealership based in Intercourse, Pennsylvania, with locations across Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. Founded by Charles Bud Huber in 1941 as an international harvester dealership, today the business is run by the third generation of the Huber family. In 2016, Huber Inc. was selected as the most valuable dealership by Precision Farming Dealer. So many times, dealerships hire somebody they're not the right fit or they're not what we thought they were, and we have a difficult time making a change. And in reality, you really need to make the change. And you can't allow that to go on very long. You need to make it sooner rather than later. That was Scott Huber, owner and director of strategic products, talking about the importance of creating a culture within an organization that's built around hiring and retaining people who pay attention to the details. Before we head over to Scott and Sarah, I wanted to thank our sponsor, HBS Systems, a multi-generational company that for over 30 years has provided leading edge systems and software technology designed specifically for ag and construction equipment dealers. Thanks for making this podcast possible. We'll jump into the conversation with Scott sharing the story of how Bud Huber first got the business going in 1941. This is the Our Dealer story of Huber Inc. Scott, thank you so much for meeting with us and talk with me a little bit to start off about how and, and why Hoover got started, the dealership. Well, that's an interesting question. There's a little <laughs> bit of a story behind that. My grandfather was a dairy farmer in the local area and he was approached by uh, International Harvester to be a dealer in that area because International Harvester had calculated that at some point the Amish would start buying tractors. And move on from their horses. Here we are, 60 years later almost, and it still hasn't happened. They're still using horses. So it's kind of interesting, but that's literally how he got started. The other thing that was kind of interesting is the month that he started in business, a month later, World War II started. Not very good timing. Immediately, the tractors were not available. And so all he could do was fix up stuff that was used or that he went out and bought used tractors and fixed them up and resold them, and that was the only way he was able to keep the doors open that period of time. So it was difficult. It was totally built around service. Of course, everybody was in the same boat. Everybody had to deal with the same thing. He gradually started growing the business, very small at that point. I think it was six or seven employees. And eventually, it kind of, it grew at a very slow pace, I would say, until my father got involved. In the mid-60s, he got involved, and once my father got involved, they were able to buy the facility across the street, which was a much larger facility, gave them a much larger shop and service and sales and parts area. And so from there, they were able to grow it significantly from there. One of the things that my grandfather would, my grandfather was a cigar smoker. Of course, back in those days, that was nothing. So when my father kind of started really basically taking the reins of the company, my dad would be buying stuff and a lot of stuff a lot of large equipment and my grandfather would kind of shake his head and say those darn boys and his cigar would just get bright red because he would see what was owed on the balance sheet and it would obviously make him very it made him very nervous but he was brave enough to let my father do what he needed to do and my father was able to really grow the business and fortunately my grandfather was kind enough to let him do that my father was a very hands-on type management style very involved in the sales and the service side of the business. 
did a lot to grow and make the dealership, how do I say this, but make the dealership very cutting edge. One of the things he was very good at, he understood his limitations and he worked to get outside people involved that had expertise in certain areas. And he allowed them to do and invest in what they wanted to be done from technology to different techniques and processes. So that really allowed us to grow from a one, two, three, four, up to a nine location dealership like we have today. So growing up around a dealership is kind of a unique experience. Any stories from your childhood being around the dealership and things that maybe happened or with your siblings? Yeah, I mean, uh, family dynamics in any kind of a family business, you have your positives that go along with that and then you have your challenges that go along with that. So I don't think our family is any different than any other family in that direction. I think the biggest challenge that we had to work on was keeping work out of family time, like the holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, because the tendency is, is just to do, basically, we went from having a, a Thanksgiving used to be just another family business meeting or a board meeting for Hooper, <laughs> just with turkey and yeah. food there on the table. So I would say that was one of the challenges that we really had to work on is to really back off that part of it over the fun times and the holidays and try to keep them more focused on the family and keeping it away from the business. So as a young man or a teenager, did you foresee yourself going into the family business? Was that your original area of interest or? Yeah, I mean, obviously I I had a lot of interest in, I worked in the business since I was very young. It's what I knew, it's what I understood. So that part of it came pretty natural. So I kind of just worked my way into that. Could I have done some other things? I had some other opportunities to do other things outside of the business. But when it came right down to it, I just chose not to. And And how long have you been involved with the dealership? I've been involved with the dealer since uh, 1991. So I've pretty much been involved for well over 25 years. Okay. And so where did you start out in the dealership? And then how has your role evolved over that 25-year period? I started out in the service department. Then I moved into sales. And then I was manager. And then I was a store manager. And then I kind of got into a corporate service role. And I got into basically managing the operations of the company. What is the strategy or philosophy that you've used in your leadership role and imparted on those who work with you? Yeah, I think risk is a little bit of another one of those terms that can mean a lot of different things as well. What my viewpoint or risk and the tolerance of risk can be very different from another person. The next person can do something and they feel like it's not risky or not at that much risk. And you may look at it very differently and think that some activity or some initiative is very risky. So I think that's where it's very beneficial to have a good support group around individuals who are making some of these decisions in order to evaluate all the different scenarios and possibilities so that when you're going to make a decision, and if it's a big decision like buying dealerships, which mm-hmm. when you go out and buy add additional stores, those are big risks because it takes time to assimilate their cultures into your cultures. And a lot of Definitely. times you can't ever get it exactly the way you want it. There's always some give and take in that arena, but those are very risky things. And so you better have your support group on board with what you needs to be done and how it needs to be done in order to move forward. We've talked a little bit about your evolution within the company. How has the business itself changed over the years, particularly since you've come on board since the early 90s? 
Yeah, I think one of the things that we've brought to the organization, we've changed within the organization, is much more of a defined organizational chart, much more defined roles, responsibilities, a lot more incentive plans being brought into the organization in order to incentivize people. And it's all around performance and accountability. So talk with me a little bit about how did you go about defining each of those roles within the dealership structure? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things that we first had to define what we wanted to be as an organization. And we've kind of always been known for our service side of our business. We've been very heavily into that. We've been very heavily into the technology side of the business. So we didn't want to make sure we didn't want to lose that culture that goes along with that. So when we put responsibility or people that are in responsible for those areas of the business, we made sure that those areas were taken care of first and that they got what they needed to do to continue to perform at the high level that they were able to perform at. And then we kind of just segment it up and move it from there. So similar to what's another deal that I heard here today, when we talked a little bit about Precision Ag, we originally had it as a separate department here in the last five years, brought it back into as part of the overall business into the stores, back into the stores, so that it was more integrated with our daily activity on a regular basis. So things have evolved. In other words, we've moved one direction, then we actually brought it back and we've changed that. And we've also changed a little bit of focus on being a store-driven model versus more of the functions. And some of that that played into that was the downturn in the economy. And when the downturn came, we obviously had to make changes and we had to do what we could to reduce expenses and those kinds of things. And so Mm -hmm. we made some evolution in the structure of the company. And now it's, we've kind of brought it back and have changed the structure back into a more growth oriented posture as the economy has improved slightly. I think what was happening when it was a separate, it was not being identified with that location. So there was a little bit of uh, competition that was happening between the store and the individual or whoever was supposed to be in that area from the Precision Ag team. By bringing them in-house, we helped to get rid of some of that competition and get more cooperation and working together and, and those kinds of things. And I think that we've accomplished that in a fairly effective manner. So earlier you were talking about incentivizing employees. Talk with me about what that looks like and how do you determine, not only from an individual perspective, what those incentives are, but also on a dealership-wide scale? How do you determine those incentives? Yeah, and I think off the bat, you have to be careful with incentives. Incentives can be as just as much harmful as they are productive. And you can come out with some incentives with an idea that it's going to help enforce an activity or a function or a process, and it actually works the opposite. So... <laughs> Incentives, I think, are are pretty tricky, and I think rarely do you ever feel like you have it 100% the way you want it or the way it should work correctly. So I think it's a bit of a give and take with incentives, but yet there's obviously value there or else so many people wouldn't be doing it. Different job descriptions, uh, obviously there's incentives that go along with those job descriptions. Over the years, you mentioned that you all have focused on customer service. Every dealership says they focus on service. How does Hoover differentiate themselves from other dealerships? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one of the areas that we've been very good at is taking care of the details. I think it's very easy in the service department to get sloppy and to not take care of the little things that go along with the service department. And that professional, very detailed, thorough, getting it done right the first time kind of culture 
really brings to its forefront quality service so that when you're repairing or working on someone's piece of equipment, first of all, they get the same experience every time. Everything is done very thoroughly so that when the unit goes back to the customer, it's done right. It's also communicated in a way that they understand everything so the detail is there, what all was done and why it was done. Communication throughout the process about the starting of the job, the middle of the job, the finishing of the job. All those details and communications and thoroughness that goes into a service tech's job or what they've done is what really helps to define a quality service department. Okay. So focusing on that level of detail and taking care of those nitty gritty things that maybe might get overlooked at other dealerships, how do you find people who have that quality or Or is that a quality that you feel can be taught? Well, I think it's a combination. Uh, What we found a lot of times is that if you have that type of culture within your organization, those techs will help you find those other techs that are the same way. Or if you hire somebody in, and I think always when you hire a tech, there's a certain amount of risk. You think you have a certain individual. You have to be willing to listen to the other techs. The good techs will tell you if you have what you have, if you have a good tech, is he going to be somebody who is going to benefit the program or is he going to be a bit of a challenge? Do we need to make a change? And then you got to be willing to make the change. So many times dealerships hire somebody, they're not the right fit or they're not what we thought they were. And we have a difficult time making a change. In reality, you really need to make the change and you can't allow that to go on very long. You need to make it sooner rather than later to either find another position within the dealership outside of a technician, or we'd work with them to find another job because Ultimately, how we treat that individual, everybody's watching. The other employees are watching. So Mm -hmm. even though they aren't the right fit, how we treat those individuals that even aren't the right fit and we need to make a change makes a difference in your culture. We'll get back to the Hoover story in a minute, but first I wanted to say thanks to HBS Systems, the sponsor of this series. To learn more about HBS's equipment dealership management systems, visit www.hbssystems.com. After that, head over to farm-equipment.com for the latest industry news. Before we get back to Scott and Sarah, I wanted to invite you to join us this August 4th through 5th at the Dealership Mind Summit in Omaha, Nebraska. Based on the feedback of past attendees, our Dealer Advisory Board, and the Dealership of the Year alumni group, we're bringing back the focus on used equipment remarketing. Space is limited for this dealer-only event, and you can register now and save $200 off the full price. Register today at dealershipmindsummit.com. Now back to the story of Hoover Inc. and the current transition underway. Here just recently, we moved into a outside president. The family has hired an outside president, and my role has moved back more to a corporate service type role. That happened about a year and a half ago. Okay. How did you make the decision to hire someone from outside, and then what were you looking for? When you were making that. Yeah, so uh, some of this is all part of the transition separating ownership from management and looking at how do we continue to grow the business and maintain the business through the next several generations. And we felt like the best way to do that is to seek someone from the outside and then we can work at the transitions with the family on the ownership side separate from the management side and then also work at getting family into management, but through a outside individual. 
What do you see as the future for Uber Inc.? In the next three to five years, what do you see changing? Oh, that's a good question. Growing. I think obviously consolidation is a big part of everybody's looking at it on the horizon. There's going to be more consolidation that's happening. So, and it becomes okay, are you going to be a buyer? Are you going to be a seller? Or are you going to be a consolidator? Whatever. So I think at some point we're going to have to be some kind of a consolidator in what we're doing. Hooper, I think, has some unique abilities in the marketplace that we've been able to cultivate that it's going to bring some real value to whatever we do or whatever direction happens. So I think in either case, I think that will remain a stable part of whatever Hooper is in the end of the future. People automatically says, well, this person buying out this person, and now it's two people. And that's not necessarily the case. Consolidating can mean a merger where you have ownership merging. You can have, obviously, the one person buying out another person. You could be the seller where you're selling and getting out of the business totally. It could be a roll-up where you're part of an IPO, sort of what Titan did in that direction. So consolidating could mean a lot of different things. Today, we have three main shareholders and one minority shareholder. At one time, there was nine, and my father had nine shareholders with him. He was majority, and we've brought it all back into just the three and then one minority. When the minority shareholder retires, then it'll just be down to the three. So I guess what brought about that change from nine shareholders down to three? Well, we felt like we needed to consolidate the ownership down to just the family. And then as the next generation comes on, the next generation will have opportunity to be owners as family members, but that'll be managed separately from the management of the company. Okay. That doesn't mean that a family member won't be managing the company. It means that ownership and management will be a more separate entity. Obviously, like in our case, we have the, our ownership group. The shareholders have to be in agreement or in alignment to move ahead with something. Mm-hmm. And then you have your management team that has to be in alignment with moving ahead with a certain direction as well. So it takes a lot because you need all these individuals to really be on board with a direction if you want to. I think you give yourself the best chance for the best possible outcome. So then how do you go about getting that buy-in from shareholders and the management team? How do you direct those conversations to get their buy-in on some of those big risk items? Yeah, I think it's the biggest thing is, is just you got to just got to be willing to be open about what's being discussed and have a very thoughtful process in which you look at the pros and the cons together so that there can be a thorough evaluation of what's being done. I think a lot of times experience or looking uh, for guidance from people that have been through these types of events, whether it's like a 20 group or other dealers that have done something that is a, have already gone through that can a lot of times help guide you through all the questions you should be asking. Because at the end of the day, if you can ask those right questions about the activity or what you want to do, a lot of times then you can come to the right answer, whether that's yes or no. So you mentioned bringing the fourth generation on board. Are those your children or? Yeah. So that would be my children, my brother's children and my sister's children. Okay. And so how many of those children are there and are any of them showing interest in being involved with the family business? Yeah, we have what we call a family employment policy, which requires if you want to be in management, you have to have undergraduate degree, and then you need to work outside the business for five years post-undergraduate in order to come back into the company in a management position. You don't have to do that if you want to just go in and work 
in a non-management position, you know, like a parts per counter person or a mm -hmm. salesperson, or a, you can forgo the five years of outside work. But we really value that the children or the next generation, if they want to work in the business, they, they really need to have the outside experience, what it means to work for somebody else for a period of time. That's been in place since 2012, approximately. Uh, we worked with a uh, family business consultant who helped us through that. We have, like I said, we have one individual that's currently working as a sales person, okay. but that, at this point, that's the only one that has okay. come back into the business. Whether there's going to be more, I think that's going to be up to them. I don't, there's no sure. real uh, pressure or to, for them to do, to come back into the business. That's really up to them what they want to do. So now let's kind of shift and talk about within the management team, how many people make up the management team and then what roles serve on that management team? Yeah, so we have a president, CEO, and we have a, a uh, kind of like a financial director, CFO. And we have a sales director, parts director, parts and service director. We also do some precision ag and also logistics, we call it, kind of a role. And then we have store managers that then report up to that team of people. We've talked a little bit about acquisitions and growing from one dealership to eight and a half. Walk me through the evolution of that process and how those acquisitions were made. And then how do you identify when you're ready to make that acquisition and how does that process work? Yeah. And a lot of times, depending on how it happens, is that you don't always choose the acquisition. Sometimes the acquisition chooses you. So sometimes the opportunity is presented to you and then you have to make a decision whether you want to pursue that opportunity or not. And in most cases, and I would think in most cases anyways, the territory is contiguous to you, what your current footprint is. So a lot of times there's already established customer bases that are in those territories that are available now and or want to be involved. And so you, you have to evaluate pros and the cons and ask the questions of the value of those locations and make a determination of what's best for you. There is a certain amount of strength in an organization that comes through size, stability, and long-term that comes through an organization that is a certain size organization. So if you really do want long-term sustainability through generations, I think you have to seriously consider how you're going to fundamentally grow the business in a way that you think is appropriate. So during those acquisitions over the years, has there ever been a point where you made multiple acquisitions at the same time? Yes. In 2013, we added four stores, which was a big challenge through all those transitions. Merging is very difficult and takes years to overcome those cultural changes. In a lot of cases, those stores were individual stores, so their world resolved around that location. Now mm -hmm. they're a part of a bigger organization and become that transition can be a very different transition and can be very difficult for them. I think a lot of what you're seeing in today's world, you're seeing large conglomerates merge with other large conglomerates. I think that's a much easier transition because the conglomerates are used already, kind of the culture is used to a larger organization. So just becoming, when you're part of a larger organization, now you're just part of another, a larger organization than when you were, you're still part of a large organization. So all the things that go along with that, you kind of already have in place. It's much more difficult when you take a single location or a two location and bring them into a larger organization because that is a huge change for those individuals that work at those stores. So 
with that, how do you manage a challenge that huge? What is the process to merge that culture and keep people interested over the years? I don't know if anybody has the perfect formula for that. It takes the right people and it takes time. Time is something that you have to allow, which means another way of saying time is patience. You know, you have to have a certain amount of patience. If you think you have the right people, you have to have a certain amount of patience. What would you say over the years have been some other major challenges that the business has had to overcome? And how did you lead through that challenge? Yeah, I think uh, we talked about the generational challenge Mm -hmm. going from one generation to the next generation. And how do we make that transition easier and smoother and going into the future? I think the other challenge that we are facing today is just the amount of capital that it's not only taking to run the business, but the amount of capital that we need to have in order to build infrastructure or buildings. In order to really grow, you need adequate facilities. And that can be a real burden that's difficult to overcome. But it has to be a plan. You have to have a plan. It has to be one of those things you just can't ignore. You have to continue to invest. And that takes risk. And that takes forethought. But yet, it's probably one of the most important things that you need to be doing is overcoming that challenge of making sure you have the right infrastructure. Thanks so much to Scott Huber for taking the time to sit down and share their story with us. And another thanks to HBS Systems for making this podcast possible. I'd love to get your feedback on the series, so drop me a line at kschmidt at lessetermedia.com. You can subscribe to the podcast via Spotify, iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn Radio. This will ensure you're alerted as soon as new episodes are made. Thanks again for joining us for this one-on-one conversation with Scott Huber. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt, signing out of the Our Dealer Story Podcast.